Well, we've reached the last Sunday in our series, The Upper Room. What we've been looking at is John chapters 13 through 17. It's where Jesus turns aside from his public ministry and he turns to his disciples and he invests into his disciples and he prepares his disciples for the events that lay ahead, the redemption that he will accomplish and the mission that will therefore uh, go forth from uh, them via the Holy Spirit. And so today we reach this last part of the series. Last week we talked about how he's told them about this unity, this unity that he desires to have with them and, and what he's going to do to accomplish that unity. And when I hear the word unity, and I hear Jesus talk about us being in Him, and Him being in us, and us all being in the Father, I can't help but think of what God designed marriage to be. This past summer, Megan and I had the privilege to help do some counseling, and I officiated a wedding for a couple that we had discipled in our ministry in, in Indianapolis. And it was, this, it was this beautiful wedding that we were part of. And, and I'm not talking about the flowers and the table settings and the dress, but just the picture of redemption of what Christ was doing in this couple was this beautiful thing. Maggie and Craig had known each other for about five years at this point, and Megan and I were together with them when they were in high school and they met. It was this beautiful thing, and, and the first funeral that I ever was asked to do was this young lady's father. And so I got this picture into her life of all of the brokenness that she had experienced, and all of the pain that that, that had been brought upon her because of things that were out of her control, people that were her father that was in leadership in her life, and all the ways that he kind of dropped the ball. And then, then I see her walk down the aisle. I'm standing up in the front. I got the best seat in the house. She's walking down the aisle. Craig is sitting next to me, and her mom is walking her down the aisle. So this is something that, you know, it's not supposed to be this way. Walking down the aisle, and they've asked me to, to share with the, with the folks that are there, the 250 or so folks that are there, why mom is walking her down the aisle. And, and, I, and I shared just briefly about that, and I just lost it. And I lost it because I saw Jesus in that room so much. This is exactly what Christ has done for us. There's a marriage that's happened. We talked about that last week. When we come into relationship with the Father, we come through Jesus. And just like in a marriage where the two become one flesh, that's what happens when we come into relationship with Christ. And see, that marriage that was occurring right there was Craig. Craig is, a, Craig is a righteous man because of the blood of Jesus, not because of his own work. Now Maggie has a better story than the one she grew up in because she's married to Craig. And the Holy Spirit is what holds them together. You see, this wedding is our unity, and the, the vows of the wedding for us are our profession of faith, our, our, our declaration that we believe in Jesus. And, and his vow to us is, I will keep them. As he says often in John, I will lose none of those that you've given me. And then there's a responsibility that comes with that covenant as well, right? There's this responsibility for the married couple to love and to, to nurture one another, to serve one another. And what I realized in that moment is that, church, we are not our own when we come into a relationship with the Father. When we are reconciled back, we belong solely to Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have responsibility in the kingdom. And I think this is what Jesus is praying about in John 17 today. This kingdom responsibility that he's called us to. Now this kingdom responsibility that he's called us to is all the work of his spirit. It's all, it's all his work, but he's called us to participate in this. And this is how he ends his prayer. We've been bought with a price and we're not our own. And so we see 
from this that we are a sent people, that the mission of God is something that's not optional for us. I think sometimes we think that the proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is the responsibility that we have to the world around us, we think that it's optional, that if I'm, that if I'm really going to be a sold-out follower of Christ, then, then I'm, then I'm going to give myself away, I'm going to make the gospel known. But Jesus says it's not optional for us, that it's proof of our relationship with Him. It just naturally comes out of us. And so without further ado, I'd like for us to stand as we look at John chapter 17, verses 13 through 26 together. I'm going to read this for us as we, as we delve into this today. So John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus is praying to the Father and He says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you, get this, take them out of the world, but that you keep them, that you keep them from the evil one. They, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, it is a mouthful to hear how your son prayed to you. But he's praying about a wedding ceremony. He's praying about a covenant relationship that your church would have with you through your son Jesus. And Father, I pray today that you would magnify our view of who you are. Magnify our view of Christ Jesus who was slain for the sins of the world so that we could be in a relationship with you. And Father, I pray that we would consider what it means to be sent by Jesus into the world. I pray that we would consider the work that you want to accomplish in and through your church. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Jesus summarizes the second part of this prayer again in John chapter 20, verse 21, when he says this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And if you know anything about the context of John 20 and 21 in that area, the disciples are scared out of their mind. They, they think that Jesus is a ghost. They're terrified Jesus has come back to life after the resurrection. And Jesus reminds them that the mission that he prayed about in John 17, the thing that they eavesdropped in and they heard him praying to the Father because the disciples were around this prayer, it still stands true. And i got to imagine that the disciples 
if I was there with them, I would, have, I would have probably responded like this. God, what do you mean you want to use me? You want to use me? Of all the people, you want to use me to, to advance the mission. You mean, I mean, you could use anyone, but you want to use us? I mean, Jesus, we've let you down so many times. The plan of God is to use his people. And I think that the, the proclamation of grace is even greater when the world around us sees that God is interested in everyday, ordinary people like you and I. It's this beautiful picture that God wastes nothing. And there's nothing that we can do to earn this, this love and this usefulness. Because there's nothing that makes you feel better than being needed, right? Who likes to be in a relationship where it's just, it's just stated relationship, there, there's, no, there's no service toward one another? The responsibility that comes with us being a part of the church about the bride of Christ is this usefulness that we have in the kingdom of God. Now, God could have brought the gospel to the world in any way that he chose, but he's chosen to bring the gospel forth through his people. He's chosen to use us. John Stott summarizes the mission of God like this. Mission is an activity of God arising out of the very nature of God. The living God of the Bible is a sending God, which is what mission means. He sent the prophets to Israel. He sent his son into the world. His son sent out the apostles and the 70 in the church. He also sent the spirit to the church and sends him into our hearts today. I would propose that, that this word mission for us as a church means the advancement of the gospel. A lot of times we think of this word mission as predominantly an activity that we offer God. I think sometimes the mission of God, the advancement of the Holy Spirit into our lives, applying this good news to our lives, sometimes it doesn't look as much like us going to serve in a homeless soup kitchen or even us bringing coats for children. Even though those are things that, that are part of the mission of God, it's not limited to that. The question that we're answering today is this. What does it mean to be sent? And that word sent is the same word that Jesus used for apostle. What does it mean to be sent? And I propose that there are three things that we see in John 17 that describe what it means to be sent. The first one is this. I think it involves sanctification. This is the first move of the Holy Spirit, and this is what it means to be sent. The Holy Spirit is first sent within us. So before there's ever an activity, it's an identity. Before us being sent into the world is ever an activity of something that we do and we participate in. It's an identity, something that God has made us into. What John Stott said in that quote is that the missionary identity arises out of the very character of God. God sent his son, John 3.16. We've been coming back to that over and over and over again because he so loved the cosmos. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. Now Jesus sends his people. It's a very part of the nature of God, and it is an identity before it's ever an activity. So the, the, the Father sanctifies us through truth. So John 17, 17 says this, Sanctify them in the truth, and your word is the truth. This week, Tatum and I were having Bible time in a room. Caden was in there with us. And we, we read this story about Jesus and Nicodemus. It's in John 3. 
in the story with Jesus and Nicodemus, the whole kind of theme is that Nicodemus wants what Jesus has to offer, but he doesn't understand how he's to get it. And Jesus answers a question that he doesn't even ask, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So Tatum and I are talking about this. What does it mean to be born again? She's like, am I supposed to like go back in mommy's belly? How does this work out? It's the same thing Nicodemus wondered, right? So we're going to talk about this idea that, that because we're so sinful, that God has to give us a new heart. That we can't obey and follow God on our own. That the Holy Spirit has to do a work to create within us a new heart. A new heart that, that has a posture that wants to serve God. And that's what it means to be born again. And theologically, that's called regeneration. God has to do this work where he gives us a new heart so that we can serve and we can share the gospel with the world. Because we're not just going to up and decide we want to do that one day. We're far too sinful to do that. The truth sanctifies us. And one of the things that I think we've got to understand about this idea of the mission of God is I think sometimes we assume that we're inviting God into our world. Okay, God, I'm going to invite you into my world. So you can be my crutch. You can get me through those times that I can't get myself in. But God has invited us into his world. And when we get this new heart and he begins to sanctify us in truth, that's evidence of that reality. He sanctifies us through the truth of his word. And if you think about this, we're a people without an identity. Because the culture around us and our fallen nature has developed our identity. It's taught us how to live life, how to be scrappy, how to get by. But when the Holy Spirit comes and he gives us a new heart, what happens is, is that new heart needs to be coded. And you know what the code language of that new heart is? It's the scriptures. So when you and I come to the word, we're learning who we are. We're learning what our identity is. The scriptures tell us exactly who we are. In the Shorter Catechism, there's this definition for sanctification because it's used here in John 17, and I thought it was extremely helpful for me this week. It says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So it's, it's a work. It's not an act. It's a work. It's this ongoing thing that God does in you and I, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. So the image of Jesus, we read this in Romans 8, the image of Jesus is what God wants to make you into. It's what he wants to make me into. Now, our life is the laboratory in which he'll do that in. It's not in sending you off to some church camp. You know, it's not in you hiding in a holy huddle, but it's your life that God wants to sanctify you. And so as your life and your personality and your desires and the truth of God all collide, that's where sanctification occurs. And I don't know about you, a lot of times my prayer to God is, God, I just wish you would sanctify me in a different way, right? You're like, I'm cool with sanctification, just do it in a different way. I, this is unpleasant. You, you, you're hitting a pressure point right now that I don't want you to be hitting. God is so faithful, though, to sanctify us into the image of Jesus. And a lot of times we would never choose that way. And so every activity, every circumstance in your life is a part of this image of Jesus that God is recreating in you. And, and, and the fact of the matter is this, is that there's not, a, there's not a, a circumstance in your life that, that you could do without in coming to that image of Jesus. Every single thing in your life is specifically working for your good and God's glory. Specifically. So there's, there's no circumstance in your life that... that that, that we could take away and you could be who God wants you to be because he is sovereign over everything. 
And so church, we can be so confident that God loves us, even in the midst of things that we, that we don't want to deal with, because He's sovereign over it all. So we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and it says we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So as this new heart within us is coded, the DNA is set as we get in the Word, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and it applies it to our heart. And we then have the ability to resist sin more. To resist the evil one more. Because of the work of God's grace in our hearts. And the thing that amazes me about the disciples being sanctified in truth is this. In John 14, Jesus has promised the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will do the work. It's all His work. It's not like God is like, hey, I've given you my word, now go prove yourself. The Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the work through the word inside of us. That's how we're being sanctified. I can't help but think of this situation a couple years ago with my son, Caden, and I. We bought this house in Lawrenceville as a foreclosure, and the basement needed to be remodeled. Because if you've been to my house, you know that we use our house. And we have people in our house at least three times a week. A lot of times, upwards of 15 kids in our basement. It's a lot of fun. We wouldn't, wouldn't change it for anything. And so the basement needed to be built out. We needed to create some space for all these people to come into our house. It was finishing out the basement. I had hammer and nails, a nail gun, whatever I was doing. And my son, I look over, and, and at one point, Caden is just watching me. And he's just mesmerized at like, hey, Dad's doing work down here. And then he kind of starts inching closer to me. And he picks up the hammer, and he starts working alongside of me. And he's, he's hammering the nails, and, and, and at one point he stops and he says, Dad, we're doing a great job, aren't we? We're doing a great job, Dad. And we continued to build, and he, he stayed down there with me for a couple hours. The, the truth of the matter is, was Caden's activity, was his work, was it really beneficial in the grand scheme of building the wall? No. No, it wasn't. If we were to look at you know, billable hours. I don't think you would have very many billable hours at that point. But what was significant is that he felt the pleasure of his father as he worked and co-labored alongside of his father. And it was, it was as if we were doing the work together. We were doing the work together because his morale and his attitude just lifted me up and, and gave me a focus that I, that I don't think I would have had before. And church, this is our reality. The father's doing a work in us. He's doing a work through us, as we're going to look at in these next two points. But the reality is, is that it's all His work. We've got the toy hammer. Can we want to think that it's our work? But it's not our work. It's His work through us. We cannot do the work of God apart from the presence and the Spirit of God within us. And that is exactly what sanctification is. It's God doing a work within us so that He can do a work throughout our lives. So what does this work look like? What is this participation that Caden had with Dad as we're building the wall in the basement that gave him so much joy where he said, Dad, we're doing a great job. What does this participation look like? Well, I think John 17 teaches us that it's twofold. The mission of the church, the work of the church is twofold. It's about proclamation and it's about demonstration. So let's look at proclamation first. The gospel goes out from the church in word. John 17, 20 says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. How? Through their word. 
So Jesus' themes of his prayer have kind of looked like he's been praying for the glory of God in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for the disciples that are right around him, that are listening in on the prayer. In verses 20 through 26, he's praying for disciples that will come from the disciples that are in front of him. He's praying for second generation, third generation, fourth generation disciples. And how are they going to become disciples? Through their word. Through their word. Now, it's God's word, but it's going to flow through the disciples. First and foremost, church, the gospel is news. It is the news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners that those who would call upon him in faith would have everlasting life. That's, that's the news that God has called us to proclaim. And we tend to think of, of, of mission a lot of times as, as purely this dutiful task. That, okay, I've got to go get to work for Jesus. I've got to go build something for Jesus. I've got to go do my duty for Jesus. But what if we viewed it, instead, church, as the best thing for us? If our metric of success as a people of God is not what we craft and build for God, but if it's obedience... What if we viewed the proclamation of the gospel as the very best thing that you and I could do? What if we viewed it that way instead of this, oh, I just got to get my bridge diagram ready to roll so that, that I can share it with this unbeliever at work? What if it was just the overflow of our lives? What if we just invited people in to hear about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? What if we were fluent in the gospel because it was the news that we, that we based our life on every single day. And if we believe what Colossians 1.6 says, which says this, that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and growing, then we need this gospel every day. It is the, is the means of how you and I grow and mature in Christ. Is the very message of God for salvation. Romans 1.16 and 17 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You hear that? It's the power, it's the dunamis, the dynamite. It's the, it's the dynamite of God in our lives. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And secondly, you couple this with Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So how will the church believe? How will the, the second and third and 2,000th generation of disciples, how will they believe? Through their word. And how do we believe through their word? Well, we have to hear the word. And then the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he applies it, he activates it in our hearts. That's how we hear the word of God. And this is exactly why some of you in here today have a story that goes like this. I grew up in the church. I know all of the stories. I've been in church since the day after I came home from the hospital. Yet I'm just now coming to faith in my 20s. You know why? Because you set up all the circumstances. The word is going forth. We cannot manufacture a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's, there's, there's no amount of right things that you could do to create a disciple of Jesus. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is pleased to work through you and I as we proclaim the gospel in our everyday 
ordinary lives, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and he wakes up those that are dead and calls them home to himself and he gives them a new heart. And this is the DNA code for that new life in Christ. In college, I was reading through the book of Acts with a friend of mine. And when you read the book of Acts when you're in college, I mean, you're just like, you're just like tempted to just be super like abnormally radical with the God. Yeah, I'm going to go out. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm moving to the other side of the world. You know, I'm going to do this thing kind of, kind of an attitude. And I can remember I caught a glimpse of what the proclamation of the gospel actually looks like from Acts 4. Instead of what we think it looks like, I got a picture from Acts 4. And Acts 4 says this. This is, this is to, to give you a little context, this is Peter and John, and they're before the Sanhedrin, and they're wanting to do something to these guys to shut them down. This, the Sanhedrin is like the, it's like the Jewish Supreme Court is the best way to kind of describe it. And, and in Acts 4, here's, here's what the word says. So they called him, called them, and they charged them, Peter and John, not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus, to, to get rid of the gospel. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Sanhedrin, rather than to God, You've got to judge. You're the judges. You're going to have to judge this. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. In the NIV, the translation of this is we can't help it. We can't help it. Church, what if the gospel inside of us was one of these things that we couldn't help but talk about because it's who we are? What if it flowed naturally from us? What if, what if it wasn't so much about an event, but it was more about a lifestyle? That, that we find our identity in Jesus Christ. And He is our only hope, and we can't help but speak of all that He's done in our lives. What if we focused more on being sanctified in truth, yet in the world, and we just let the Holy Spirit lead us? What if we let God dictate how the gospel goes forth instead of trying to manufacture it ourselves. What if we did that? It would take all the pressure off of us and we would focus on hearing God, being with Him, and letting Him do His thing through us. We would be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. That would be the work that God would do. What would it look like if our posture was, I don't care what you guys think, but I can't help but talk about this. I can't help but speak of it. You could try to shut me down. But he who raises people from the dead, well, his power lives inside of me. And the word is going to go forth because it is who I am. Lastly, the gospel is displayed among the world indeed. Demonstration. John 17, 15 says this, I do not ask that they be taken out of the world. He's talking about the disciples but that you keep them from the evil one. In John 17, 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who you believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. We see the heart of the Father is unity, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you. See that picture of the marriage, right? That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Essentially, John is saying that the life of the Christian is an open invitation for the world to see and taste that the Lord is good. 
And so, this invitation goes wherever you go. When you're working at your job, it's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. When you're walking your dog in your neighborhood, it's a It's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good because your life is the laboratory that the world gets to look in on and see how God has rearranged and disordered what you thought was going to be perfect and he's made you into the image of Jesus, which is far better than anything you could have ever wanted. And it's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. The proclamation of the gospel is coupled with demonstration. It's a a both and, not an either or. James chapter 2 essentially says basically that neither are sufficient on their own. Neither are sufficient. It's not about, hey, let's just go and, and just, just put the gospel on a loudspeaker and tell the world. That's great, but, but the demonstration that couples it because it, you, know what it, you know what it shows? It shows life change. It shows transformation. It shows metamorphosis of the work of the Holy Spirit making us more into the image of Jesus. I don't, I don't think there's any better example of this than what happened in and through St. Patrick. Now, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day every year. We do it with green things and sometimes beer and four-leaf clovers and all that kind of stuff. But the, the interesting thing is, is that Patrick really got this. As Jesus is praying in John 17, 15, he says, I, I pray that you wouldn't take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So what does it look like for our life to be on display? Well, St. Patrick, when he was about 16, just to give you a brief snapshot of his life, was captured by Irish pirates from his home in Great Britain and taken as a slave to Ireland. And he was looking after animals. And one day, six years into his captivity in Ireland, all of the things that his parents taught him when he was younger started to be activated by the Holy Spirit. He came to faith in Christ while he was in captivity in Ireland in a land that wasn't his home. And Jesus met him there. So after this happens, he escapes, he goes back to Britain, and he's trained. He's trained as clergy, and he becomes a bishop, and he's a bishop for 20 years. So just about the age of retirement, Patrick decides to leave the pastorate there in Great Britain, and he decides that he's going to go back to those guys that captured him. He's going to go back to those enemies that took him out of his homeland, and really created this experience for him to, to see God more fully than he'd ever seen him before. He felt called back to these, to these people. He's near the age of retirement, near, near really the age of death. Very common at that age to, to die in your 40s. And his approach was this very communal approach. He felt called as a missionary to the Irish. Now the way that he did missionary work, I would propose, is very similar to what we feel called to here at New City Church. It's not your typical way to think of the missional lifestyle. So through his 35 years in Ireland, I just want to give you a picture of the repercussions of what happened through his ministry. His 35 years in Ireland, he planted more than 200 churches, and he led over 100,000 people to faith in Christ. 100,000. So how did he do this? There's kind of these two different models of evangelism, and Patrick had a, a different model of evangelism. See, the Roman model, which was real common in the day, was this. Hey, let's present the Christian message. Let's proclaim the gospel proclamation, and let's, let's invite them to decide to believe in Christ and become Christians. And then when that happens, when they make the decision, then we'll invite them into our fellowship. Then they can have access into who we really are after they've made the decision. But until then, let's keep them at arm's reach. Because we don't want to be tainted by the world, right? 
It's interesting, Jesus prays, protect them from the evil one, but keep them in the world. Now look at the Celtic model, which is what Patrick did in, in Ireland. It started with fellowship. So establish fellowship with people. Invite them into your community of faith. So, so let's dwell among the world and let's invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good through everything that we do. That nothing in our life is meaningless. So let's invite the world in to see that the Lord is good. And then within the fellowship, engage in conversation, ministry, prayer, and worship. So basically just be yourself. Just be a Christian. Just be a Christian and provide opportunities for people that are not yet believers to taste and see that the Lord is good. Just be a Christian. And then in time, they discover that they now believe. Invite them to commit. Because conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not something that we have to, to manufacture. And so we're, we're constantly speaking about the gospel because it's our hope in our communities. And we've got, we've got people that believe and don't believe in our midst. And they, they hear us talking about our faith in Christ and we invite them to believe. See, we're having this in our missional community that we have right now. There's several people in our missional community that aren't believers. And, and at first I was tempted to just kind of like, oh, we really need to water this thing down. We need to make it very palatable. We need to go to the lowest common denominator. But then I realized that the most attractive thing to the world around us is our fellowship. The community church that we have, that Jesus has, has, has given among us, is the greatest apologetic to an unbelieving world. It's the greatest defense of the faith. Is the community that we share. So why would we conceal that from the world? Why would we hide that from the world around us? Why would we not invite them in to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the question becomes, how do we do that? What does that look like? I think we do that within this church body that we have. Uh, that, that we develop a lifestyle of, of being connected to other believers within the New City Church church body. That, that, we, that, we, that we invest in relationships. That, that even though you know, it's kind of risky to, to, to put yourself out there, that we invest. We invest for our good and for the good of the world around us. Because we know that God has created us to live in unity with one another and himself. And so we invest and we commit to the unity that God has given to us. You see, this is scary because I think a lot of times, I was convicted on this a couple years ago. A lot of times we set up our lives. And what we're trying to do, I think unknowingly a lot of time, is to avoid the Holy Spirit's interaction with our relationships. We say, okay, I've got this in common with them, so we we got this kids, and, you know, we've got, uh, we work here, we kind of have a similar job, so we'll share life with those people. What we're saying is that we don't need the Holy Spirit to make us one, we'll just make ourselves one. We'll just see what we have in common. But when we share life with people that are different than us, what we're asking the Father is, Father, make us one. Declare to the world that you can make people that seemingly don't have anything in common one. And when we get into this place, these relationships where we ask God to do this, a magnificent thing occurs. He does it. He does it. And this is why we're experiencing this at New City Church. We've got, we've got, we've got one of our missional communities that has 20-year-olds and people that are in their 80s. And, and they're experiencing this unity because of the Holy Spirit. Nothing that they have in common on the outside. They're, they're experiencing this unity because of what God is doing. It's a demonstration and declaration to the world that Jesus is real and that he's making his people one. So we do this with other believers outside of the local body. I know a lot of times, if, in Atlanta especially, you're, we kind of have tribal language, right? You're like, oh yeah, 
Like, we're the real believers. They're kind of the fake believers over there, right? We don't really, you know, they're not a part of our tribe. They're not a part of our denomination. They don't have the same ministry model as us, so we're not going to share life with them. But what, what if we sought the peace of the community together? Have, have you ever thought that other churches may have a different angle on the renewal of all things than we do? So, so we, as a church, we, we want to seek to partner with other churches. This week I heard Tim Keller say something that absolutely blew my mind. Someone asked him this week, hey, hey, being as busy as you are with your own ministry, why do you as a senior pastor make so much time to unify and equip other churches in New York City? Listen to what he said. He said, in the, in the body, church growth that does not benefit the rest of the body is not biblical. So if we're seeking to, to, to benefit our church and not the church at large in Lawrenceville, it's not a biblical growth. And then he says this, in the human body, cells that only benefit themselves, you know what they're called? Cancer. They're called cancer. Cells that only benefit themselves. So church, we want to reproduce cells that benefit the whole body because this is the work of God. God is after a much bigger thing than even what happens in the living rooms across the community, in missional communities, and here on Sunday mornings. God is after a much bigger thing. And so I want to encourage you to join us in this mission of seeing God make all things new as we partner even with other churches. It's one of the reasons why we pray for other churches each and every Sunday because we think God wants to do a good work through them. And it may look different than the work he wants to do through us, but we're all benefiting from it because it's God's work. And lastly, we do this among the world. We do this in our everyday ordinary lives because we are surrounded by people that are not yet believers And nine times out of ten, whenever I've seen people that are not yet believers come to faith, they have come to faith through means that I would have never drawn up. And so we walk in step with the Holy Spirit and we trust Him to do His work. You know, I love movies. And on occasion, I'll be suckered into watching a movie that... It's like they put all of the good moments of the movie in the trailer, right? You ever watched a movie like that? You're like, man... They got me. I'm watching this movie, and they put like their best two and a half minutes of the whole movie in that trailer, and now I'm stuck watching the other hour and a half here. You know, a trailer has that effect, though. It gives you a taste of what's to come. So, church, I want to invite you this week and forevermore as we live, as the family of God together here in Lawrenceville, demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel, to invite people into your story, and and as a church, as a body together, that our lives might be a trailer of the kingdom of God. That the way that we live and the way that we interact with those around us would be an invitation to come and check out the whole film. To come and see how good God is. And I find it interesting that Jesus ends his prayer with this. Encouraging his disciples, praying to the Father for his disciples as he's getting ready to make his way to the cross. He'd cross over the Kidron Valley. There'd be all this blood pouring out all over the place because it was the Passover and everyone killed an animal. He'd probably be bloody as he made his way across the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he would go there and he would pray. And that's where he'd be betrayed. And Jesus shares this with his disciples. And he prays for them so that the mission could go forth. And he has chosen to use you and I. 
So church, let's, let's band arms together. Let's, let's seek to utilize the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to the world around us. Let's pray together. Father, I would not be standing here today as a pastor of a new church plant if your gospel had not gone forth. Father, my friends in this room right now would not be sitting in these chairs today if your gospel had not gone forth. Father, would you give us a burden to see the gospel go forth? Father, would you help us to lay aside our desires in our lives and seek you and seek your kingdom to see the good news proclaimed and demonstrated in our spheres of influence? Father, would you give us confidence through your Holy Spirit, this inner work of sanctification that you're doing in us, where you're making us more like Jesus and and we're able to live more into the righteousness of God and, and put sin to death. Would you do that work in us? And would we remember the great promise that you give your disciples? That you are with us always to the very end of the age. And so just like my son, Caden, thought that he was building the wall in the basement because I invited him to participate. Father, you invite us to participate in the advancement and the building of the kingdom. But it's your work. It's a father and son. It's a father and daughter endeavor. Would you encourage us with that this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.